Welcome back to the Pod Cuddle Podcast. Today, you know, we thought we would dig into a couple of topics that are they're kind of plumbing issues. Um, you know, sort of grungy and grimy at times, but ultimately sort of important to keep things flowing and, and make sure that your applications and your containers are running properly. So we thought today we would uh, not so much do a basic show, but dive deeper into both. Uh, networking with Kubernetes as well as storage for Kubernetes because they're topics that tend to come up quite a bit. Um, people aren't always exactly sure if they're like their previous world or if it's you know completely different and new. So uh, you know, I thought we would dive into that a little bit. Tyler, how are you doing this week? I'm I'm doing well. I think uh, I think plumbing is a good uh, good analogy here, right? Where it's it's the, the stuff's flowing around. Uh, people don't think about it too much except uh, when it gets backed up. And yeah. then it's a big problem. Right, right. Exactly. It uh, <laughs> always seems to break when you don't want it to break. Yeah, so I thought we would dive into it. I, I think we'll, we'll start with networking. So let's start kind of with the basics. What are, even before we get into kind of how this works, what are the most common kind of misperceptions you see when people kind of think about containers and networking or even Kubernetes and networking? Um, well, I think some of it is, is just kind of informed by virtualization. So if you're used to virtualization, you're like, oh, I create a virtual, I'm making a virtual computer, and a virtual computer has virtual network interfaces, and I can hook them up to virtual switches and, and things like that. And in the container world, you, you're not, a container is not a separate, you know, machine, if you will, so it doesn't have its own kind of full NIC that you could treat just like your traditional networking world. So I think that's like, that's the first change where you have to, some of the same networking things can apply, but there's other, you know, it has some some other limitations and different approaches to, to kind of handle the networking uh, between containers on a host. I think that's a good place to start because to a certain extent, a container looks like an application. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't look like a full machine, but at the same time, a container does sort of have some properties that look uh, like a machine. It has to be addressed. Um, you have to be able to route to it. You might have different patterns for inbound traffic and outbound traffic and so forth. So, so why don't we start with the basics? So, Somebody deploys a container on a Linux host. What's the most basic way that they're going to network that host or that that container, say, to the host or to the rest of the world? Uh, the mo- the most basic way is actually leveraging the host's interface. So when you when you create a container, uh, generally you're creating a a tap interface. So sort of like uh, you know using bridge the Linux bridge uh, technology. So you're assigning a t- you're basically giving a tap interface to that container and then connecting it to an existing interface. So if you're connecting it directly to that host's regular Ethernet interface and it's ETH0 or whatever, like it's going to be listening on this on that IP address and you know responding on whatever ports that container's on. That's like the, the bare bones basic way to uh, to get a container on the network. Right. And and that works fine if you're you know doing something on your laptop or you know maybe you've got you know one one machine or something and you're you're gonna have a container or two containers. Let's let's go a step further. Let's say I want to have I don't know 15, 20 containers on a host, or, uh, you know, I've got 10 machines and containers all over the place. Now what starts happening uh, in terms of networking? Because it's not going to be as simple as just saying bridge uh, the container to the host and just use the host's single IP address. Yeah, the the next basic level up is having a sort of like private network for the host that has, you know, say it's a separate private subnet and you're putting the containers, it's, you know, it's a little tap interface onto that bridge. uh, And then you're you're kind of gating that through the proxy out to the out to the world. So that's when you're saying, hey, whether it's you know, Kube or Docker or whatever, you're saying expose this expose port 8080. It's saying when when a request comes to that host for port 8080, your proxy is then going to redirect it onto this private network to those those containers um, on whatever port that it decided to set up. Right. So that that would be a scenario where 
uh, let's say you've got you know a bunch of web servers are all sitting on 80 or 8080, or maybe you've got you know a couple of different applications, and you're going to expose a couple of different ports. Any networking that goes on between those containers is going to be local to the host. Like you said, it's sort of done through the local cube proxy or you know done through internal networking on that on that server. And proxy is sort of a, a native Kubernetes function, right? It comes when you say, look. I've got a bunch. I'm going to run a bunch of pods uh, locally on a machine. Um, Kubernetes basically says, "Okay, cool. Uh, you you may want to run those, you know, locally, non exposed to the public network. But if you want to expose them, you know, we're essentially going to put a proxy in there that's going to help manage uh, traffic flows and, and IP addresses and ports and all that stuff." Yeah, basically the cube. You know, it's part of the the, the kubelet. You know, running on all the nodes. So you'll have a kube proxy on each. You know, on each node and whatever, you know, through Kubernetes, you say, hey, node port, expose, you know, this node port. It'll say, okay, your, like, your container is on port 6327 or whatever. No matter which instance the Kube proxy you hit and ask for that port, it's going gonna, it's gonna to redirect you to that container. That's sort of the, the next level up of, of I have, you know, multiple containers on a host and, and they're going to talk to the outside world. What are some of the sort of the next level of kind of complexity sophistication we get into for networking for things like isolating those hosts or uh, if I want to give those hosts their own IP address for um, you know naming reasons or identification reasons so the next big move is um, you know you start getting what you would call you know SDN type solutions where you're doing more complex networking things uh, and the way kubernetes has, has set that up is through CNI the the, the container uh, networking interface, which is a specification following the you know the AppC Corda CNI specification, and say like here's how we can talk and ask for network stuff, and your SDN plugin thing will do those things. Uh, so that's when you can do more advanced things. Everything from setting out subnets, like say a flat subnet per per node, or you could do something like you know the next, as you said, getting more into partitioning you can create a basically a virtual network per namespace uh in your in your kubernetes cluster so that way you know they have they're on separate virtual even though they're you know traversing the same wires as usual it has their own separate virtual network so like cni is the piece that that enables that right and i, and I think for the way people for them to think about that is the same way that you i don't know this is maybe a little too simplified but like the same way that you had sort of a standard in terms of of interfacing a a server host into the network, which used to be sort of Ethernet, which was kind of a standard. Most people think of it as sort of a wire, but it's essentially a standard. You know, CNI becomes that virtual way that you're going to connect, uh, like you said, SDN systems into into Kubernetes. So this is this is what's going to allow you to do everything from like OVS kind of native Linux networking, uh, you know, OVS multi-tenant types of things to third-party types of uh, SDN solutions. So whether those come from people like Weave or Contrail or, you know, you, you see things like um, what's the BGP solution that's out there a lot. Yeah, Calico. Calico. Yeah, yeah, Calico. And, um, th- you know, this, this allows the ecosystem nuage. Um, it allows things like, you know, load balancers to plug in. But it's it's the nice thing is essentially Kubernetes has standardized around a standard way for network interfaces to plug into the system and then companies can decide uh you know what what capabilities do i need out of that that network infrastructure in terms of multi-tenancy in terms of uh you know load balancing in terms of you know isolation segments and firewalls and stuff all that has a a standard interface um, which allows it to be you know multi you know multi-ecosystem if you will yeah i think i think what's really cool so like right now as that's 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 maturing too uh, Kubernetes is also extending kind of its capabilities to to inform those solutions, right? Because now that you have these these SDNs that can do all sorts of crazy stuff, like, well, how do you how do you integrate that in a way through CNI? 
So like right now you're getting, you know, we, you do with the, you know, like multi-tenant, the multi-tenant approach just sort of says like, hey, we can create separate virtual networks. Uh, but Kubernetes has added a thing called network policy. So that way you could, as the, you know, the, the user of Kube, say you have your own namespace or projects and, and you're deploying pods, you can say, you could you supply instead of the sort of system administrator saying like, here's what can talk to each other. You supply say like, here, deploy this thing. And the, and the, this is what ports are open inbound or outbound. You know, these, here's what you can get really granular. So having that ability to configure exposed through Kube, but then pass through the CNI to let the underlying, you know, whether it's OBS or one of the third party plugins do its thing um, is, is getting that consistent flow. So if you're, no matter what you're using as the SDN, you still through network policy configure those things the same way. Yeah. And the nice thing about network policy is it's, you know, it's all sort of based on labels. So it, it's, it's a concept that's, you know, labels have been around in Kubernetes sort of since day one. It was the way of uh, identifying resources, somewhat isolating which resources could talk to other resources and so forth. And it's going to let you logically think about, okay, these front ends can talk to these back end systems or these microservices can talk to these microservices. Maybe it specifies, you know, inbound traffic versus outbound traffic. And again, you're going to be able to dictate it based on labels. And so, it should you know, allow you to have kind of a logical way of thinking about it, especially as you maybe you move from dev to QA to prod and so forth, but, but also gives you kind of a commonality of, of language so that developers go, hey, I think about a front end or I think about an application or a microservice. I don't have to think about like, oh, what does that mean in terms of some strange uh, CLI for a subnet mask or some other, some other thing like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that framed around the like what makes sense. I think also it's it's being realistic. So in Kubernetes, you have the concept of services. So if I have pods running and I want to advertise a service, uh, even if it's just to other pods, um, that's what the service is there for to, to be that point. You have an endpoint for that service that says, OK, if you're now, you know, you're looking for a Redis, you know, there's a Redis cluster and you're looking, your app is going to look for it. It's like here you can get to, to the services and through the built in Kube uh, DNS uh, capabilities and you're like well why is Kube doing its own dns and if you read through the notes i think one of the things that that they call it pretty wisely is a lot of dns clients don't actually follow ttls and things like that so you get weird behavior where your client is caching you know a an outdated ip or something like that from a service so it said well let this is this is a problem so we're going to include this in kubernetes so you'll just go straight to us for this stuff so that's where the you know DNS comes in from a Kubernetes perspective. Yeah, and I think that's an important point to thing to point out because I, I think there, people do. I think they realize, and they you know if they if they've seen enough sort of basic tutorials or things, um, you know containers are you know they are they are ephemeral. In a lot of cases, they're going to be ephemeral. They'll they'll come and go. Which from a networking perspective is you know not your not your not not a friendly thing, right? Um, you know you expect. IP addresses to sort of be known. They're going to be associated with, say, MAC addresses. You might have applications that are, you know, trying to reach those things. And so if you have a system that, like you said, was sort of based on previous assumptions, you know, like I can cache things because it'll help me reach things faster. And now you've got containers which are going to come and go and you might be dealing with stateless applications versus stateful. You want a system that's much more responsive uh, in terms of saying, look, we're just going to have a lot of change. We're going to have high rates of change in here. I've got to be able to update the system uh, based on, you know, based on higher rates of change and, and have the system, you know, not freak out when that happens. It's just accepting the limitations of other systems that are going to act that aren't used to that, right? So because, you know, traditionally things aren't that changing that fast, you know, you get a kind of a, a view into the, the developer coder's mind where, 
you know, someone wrote a DNS client for an operating system or something like, well, you know, we're caching this. You know, it was like, oh, well, it, yeah, like that's the TTL, but like that's never going to change. Like the server address isn't going to change like every minute or something like that. Right, and right. just never that that never crossed their mind. So so just accepting that that is the case, I think is you know some of the wise decisions you see in in the kubernetes architecture those decisions being made we say like this is just technically it shouldn't work like this but this is the way of the world so let's just you know accept that and, and work around it right um the other thing that people talk about sometimes around networking is this idea of sort of service chaining so you know how do i how do i introduce a load balancer or a proxy or a firewall into this world what are some of the common ways that you're seeing because it's there's sort of not one way but what are some of the common ways that you're seeing people introduce those you know layer 4 5 6 7 types of uh, services into into networking you know one of the the beauties of of how kubernetes is set up too is you know the the obvious ones are like web right so you're saying right. like oh well this is where the ingress router comes in where you're saying like oh i have like you said i have 80, you know, WordPress pods running and I want to route to them based on the DNS, the inbound DNS host name. So I could set rules. So it's like, oh, if I'm, if someone's asking for, you know, this particular host name, I'm going to route, route to the right pod and, and all that kind of stuff like that. And, and that's, that's obviously a, a good use case, but then there's plenty of other things that aren't web, you know, that aren't layer seven that needs that type of routing that you may just need straight DNS resolution and everything like that. So I think it's very modular that lets you plug in the pieces you need. You may not need a full ingress router, you know, just doing services and endpoints may be enough for your use case. You may need, um, you know, load, load balancing. And I, I think it's smart also that, you know, Kubernetes doesn't, load balancing is, is a pretty well understood and established service. So just building it into Kubernetes doesn't make a lot of sense. You can run load balancers, you know, some people run load balancers as pods, you know, they use some like Nginx has a as a specific solution around that. Or, you know, if you're on a public cloud provider, or, you know, wherever your infrastructure is running, so if you're running on AWS, they have, you know, ELB. So having Kubernetes just be able to talk to ELB, uh, I think makes makes much more sense. So I think it's a very pragmatic approach to everyone's environment's different, everyone's needs are different. So having very pluggable uh, but under the covers, if you're a developer, you're just saying, I need a load balancer. You're not you're not dealing with that piece. So so it has that nice separation of, you know, developer request when, with the pod or or service and then underlying infra being able to supply that in a way that makes sense. No, and I, I think you hit on two really important things. Uh, you know, one of them being um, you definitely want a really simple way for a developer to say, um, I'm going to need load balancing services here. Um, you know, at, at a at a bare minimum, you may need you know they may need something more sophisticated. But you you want to make it very simple for them to say, "Yep, going to need a load balancer," and basically you know put it here in terms of the traffic flow because that's that's kind of the way I expect the application to work. Um, the other thing I think is is really valuable is Kubernetes kind of falls in what I call sort of a composable platform, right? It's, you know, there are, there are some PaaS-like platforms that, that tend to be very highly opinionated, which not only dictates what your application looks like, but it also dictates um, under the covers a lot of times, like what your traffic flows look like, you know, do, do they have to go uh, in this direction? Can you, be, can you be more prescriptive about inbound traffic versus outbound traffic? Where do you hairpin traffic? Kubernetes is much more kind of composable and modular. And so they don't dictate what the platform has to look like in terms of traffic flows. It allows you to say, look, uh, we've got some standard pluggable interfaces, um, but, you know, we also want you to take, you know, if you need to take advantage of, you know, native cloud services or native services from, you know, your your internal cloud, your external cloud, whatever that might be. And 
And I think ultimately that's that's pretty important. You you know you, you don't necessarily dictate that the platform has to run at the same pace that that networking services are you know being adapted uh, you know around it or underneath it. It's all about what makes sense for that individual developer. And I yeah. think the idea of like there's one perfect way to do things. I think we've thoroughly disproven that through through the history of computing. Right. Yep. There's yep. there's only clearly one good way to do things is generally not the case. So so leaving that to be very you know, compostable to set up what that individual developer groups need is, I think is, is pretty powerful. Okay. So I think we've, I think we've hit on networking a good amount. Obviously um, there's tons in there in 15 minutes, you know, ultimately we're going to kind of point you to some documentation to go take a look at it, but hopefully that gives you some things to go. Okay, cool. I should go dig into that concept a little bit more or, you know, uh, okay, I have a bunch of questions about that. Let me go dig into it. So uh, lots of good stuff in the, in the show notes about pointers to, um, you know, how different networking implementations are done. Let's take the flip side of the, uh, the plumbing coin. Let's, let's look at storage a little bit. Um, let's start in the same way. What are, what are some of the misconceptions or at least broad misconceptions about storage and containers that you hear out in the market? I think the number one thing is like, that's, it's sort of like a corner niche use case. Like, well, what do you, what do you need persistent storage for containers? You just get storage from the host and it runs. Your container should be as small as ephemeral as possible. And you know, disappearing every you know minutes or hours or whatever, and, and that's just it. Um, and I think that's the biggest misconception. I'm like, well, no, no, there's plenty of use cases for containers that are persistent um, mm-hmm. and need you know c- persistent storage. Yeah, no, I, I think that yeah that that to me I think is the the number one misconception. And I and I think there's always the folks to say, hey, cloud native, cloud native, cloud native. And all you have to do is sort of point back to, you know, the, the tons of companies that have, you know, kind of built cloud native applications, say on top of AWS. And in a lot of cases, it's like, yeah, I use, I use S3 and I use uh, EBS and those are both persistent storage uh, environments. And, you know, my applications need data, right? I mean, data, you know, it, it's, I think, I think you always say it all the time. Like if, if you don't deal with data, all you're doing is punting it over to somebody else as a, as a problem. So there, there's really no such thing as a purely stateful stateless application. Yeah. Outside of like, hello world type apps, like, you know, most of the things is you're saving something. You're, you know, there's some crud thing happening at some point, the data is getting flushed somewhere permanent. You know, you're saying, oh, our app's totally cloud native. It's like, well, what do you, oh, you, like you said, we use EBS, we use RDS. We, we, we're punting that problem to someone else. It's like, well, it's still persistence. It's right. just, you're not managing the persistence. Right. You know, and same thing with like, you know, now that Kubernetes, we have the, you know, the open service broker and you're like, oh, well, I could just request a database and that's not my problem anymore. It's like, well, it's still persistent and the data's still going there and it could still be living on your Kubernetes platform. You're just, you know, you're passing the, the line of control off to someone else. Um, but there's still there's still a need for persistence. And I, I think we, we've sort of seen, you know, if, if we took a snapshot in time right now, you know, it's 2017, you know, what does storage look like for containers? I, I think I think you touched on one of them. One of them is, you know, use the local host storage and, and that's going to work for some use cases. Um, I think we see people, like you said, punting it off to somewhere else where they'll go, well, you know, my storage basically is what's in my database and then that's backed by something else. So I'm kind of punting that off to some, you know, separate, separate, you know, VM based system. Right. And, and we still see some of that, um, you know, that that's still kind of a, a known uh, operational model, but we're seeing more and more people say, well, you know, why can't I use kind of container native storage or, you know, storage that's, that's more aware of that. Um, let's talk about the basics of that. Right. I think people get confused sometimes because again, you know, we, we harp on this sometimes, you know, in most cases, Linux or containers or containers or Linux, um, you know, you can use all the same, 
constructs that Linux uses in terms of, uh, you know, mounts and volumes and stuff uh, to, to, to store data. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the, the most basic thing you start there is no matter whatever your underlying thing is, is it could be as simple as your physical server, you're running Kubernetes on has a bunch of disks in it. And, you know, they show up as devices in Linux or, you know, you're running on Amazon, you have an EBS volume mapped up and there's there's a mount point there. Well, you can, you know, with with Kube and and you know the Linux containers, you can pass those volumes up into the container. That's a, like the most straightforward way. What's what's interesting about that is it could be NFS, it could be Block, it could be, and and that's where I think the you know Kubernetes is coming with the the CSI, the concept of like here, just like we did for for networking, we're going to explain how to talk, we're going to give you an API and a standard for if you want your storage thing, for us to be able to ask your storage thing for stuff, uh, there's a standard way to do it. So that way, if you're, you know, you have your manifest for Kube and you're deploying an app and you're like, well, I'm going to need a, a hundred gig persistent volume, uh, Kube asks through the CSI to whatever you're getting storage from, like here, hey, I need that. And I'm, I'll tell you where, which node to connect it to where, by where I hook up the, where I hook up the pods. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think people forget sometimes, like, that that construct, uh, you know, even before you got to say CSI, like you could get to an NFS mount, you could get to an iSCSI mount, you could get to a lot of things. Um, and in a lot of cases, you need some ability for for a lot of those things if you're if you're building out a platform. So you may need one type of storage slash performance um, for you know an application, and you may need something different in terms of. Uh, you know, how easy it is to access or how it replicates to multi-sites if you're doing, say, like a container registry or, you know, something else. So, you know, a lot of the, the constructs that people have known about managing storage, you know, shared storage or, you know, file system storage or things like, you know, how to replicate it. Uh, the nice thing is some of those things are going to be, you know, going to continue to be to be useful and valuable. I think what people are starting to, it's starting to sink in the, the like you said, like containers or, or Linux, you know, they're not, they're not a real thing, a logical thing in, in Linux. They're a group of, you know, smaller Linux and, and Linux kernel features that are put together to logically build this thing is that you're like, well, if it runs on Linux, I can kind of do it in a container. And I think what you're seeing now is you mentioned container native storage. This thing, there are technologies like to aggregate storage together, things like Gluster and Ceph and other um, software-based technologies to say, cool, I have a bunch of hosts with a bunch of storage, whether it's local or they're coming from you know, some storage array or whatever. Like, I want to I just group that up into a pool of storage. And you're like, well, well why can't I run that in containers? It's just Linux software. Right. Um, so that's, the, that's like the next thing you're seeing now, which is like, cool, I'm running on, say, Amazon, whatever. I have EBS volumes mounted up to all my, you know, my nodes. I was like, well, I can run a bunch of pods that are running you know, Gluster, and then pooling all that, you know, present those local volumes up to those pods. And then now I've created a pool, which I can then present back to Kubernetes for the individual applications. Right, right. And it, and it you know, it kind of follows two things. One, it follows this, this big trend that we've just seen in the infrastructure space around more and more uh, infrastructure, you know, storage in particular, kind of becoming software, right, as opposed to the big proprietary arrays and so forth, more and more of it's kind of software-based. Um, the other thing is, in a lot of cases, people might say, well, you know, why wouldn't I just use sort of like a native storage thing? In a lot of cases, these these container native things are, you know, they're running on x86 because they're containers. Containers, obviously, we've seen in a lot of cases are getting really great density. So, you know, kind of usage, capacity usage is, is really high. Um, so we, we've seen, um, you know, some cases, and I think we'll, we'll begin to see more cases where you're actually going to utilize 
you know, x86 resources more efficiently than you would have if, uh, you know, they had been on, you know, big, big proprietary arrays or something like that. So I think we'll, we'll begin to see that more and more. And then we'll also see, you know, it'll be easier to manage container native storage as an application, just like every other application that you're running on some Kubernetes platform. I think the, the like software based or, uh, you know, storage is, is getting mature. So besides, you know, like I mentioned, Gluster and Ceph, and then there's, you know, proprietary ones. There's, you know, even if you look at VMware, vSAN, like there's there's these totally software-based uh, storage technologies. I think, you know, bringing it to containers is kind of the new part where, uh, you know, some of the paradigm shifts a little. So it's like, well, what could what could be done to make this more effective? Because I think some of the use cases are like, well, I want to pull up storage. What if I want to pull up storage across availability zones or whatever? And then you get into this herd of like, uh, you know, traditional, like what happens when we start stretching storage kind of problems. Yep. Um, but I think it's, it's as that stuff gets more integrated, I think that's the big sell is, you know, even on the, the, you know, you see some of these, you know, software based platforms where it's like, Hey, they integrate really well with the higher level thing I'm doing. So as this gets more, you know, these technologies get more integrated, say with Kubernetes, uh, where it gets more turnkey. Um, I think it, it can bring a lot of value to it. And it's just really, to me, it's about customers, you know, or users figuring out what makes the most sense, you know, for their particular Kubernetes environment. Yeah, the other the other concept I think we need to talk about it, and you you kind of briefly touched on it. This this idea of CSI or container storage interface. A lot of what that's doing is is it's bringing the same concepts that we learned in virtualization uh, into the container world. So so the basic concept was, you know, you used to have to say, okay, uh, I have a server that's going to need some sort of shared storage, if you will, or whatever. Um, I have to go to the storage team and then they have to provision it. And that takes a long time. And if I want to change something, then I have to go back to them. You know, so the original concept was, well, if I now have this faster moving compute resource, um, why can't I, you know, kind of get the storage to match it in terms of speed of provisioning, speed of change. And so what they did is they figured out, you know, how do I kind of pre-allocate a bunch of of, uh, available space, um, thinly provision it so it doesn't actually use it, and then, you know, allow the applications or the compute resources to just sort of dynamically pull these, uh, you know, pull these claims, if you will, pull these volumes, if you will. And Kubernetes essentially has similar concepts in, um, you know, in, in how they do dynamic volumes and so forth that allows, you know, storage to be pre sort of pre-provisioned, if you will, or pre-allocated. And then applications can dynamically just pull those um, as needed for, you know, however much they need. Yeah, I, I think a big piece of it, too, is is sort of the, the self-documenting aspect of containers. I mean, if you think, of, think about an individual container, you know, one of the, the, the best pieces of it are the dependencies are explicit. So if you're putting an app in a container... You're in your Docker file or whatever, you're basically saying, here's all the stuff that needs to be in the container. Here's the version. You're very explicit of what the that is. Now, if you take that up to the coop level, to a manifest, and because of these type of plugins, again, it's supplied in the manifest to say, I need these networking. I need these networks. I need this type of storage of this size. Um, the, depend, the overall application dependencies are spelled out and documented in the manifest. I mean, think about, you know, go back, whatever, 10 years or whatever, and you have an or- some Oracle database server running and like your DR run books is like, okay, well, how many, you know, so we have a disaster. How many storage array LUNs do we have to hook up? What size are they? Like, how is it to put, you know, this outdated run book of, you know, that that hadn't been kept up with the new versions and the new couple new volumes that have been added in the last six months. And it's, it's kind of one of those tough you know, IT change management problems where now, you know, the container is doing it for the application, you know, you know, Kube is doing it at that next layer up. So the manifest says, 
here's the volumes I need. Here's, so if I need to change that, I change the manifest and it's sort of uh, self-documenting. Right. Yeah. No, and I think you've, you've, you've harped on that a number of times. It's, you know, the sort of codification of what your day-to-day operation should look like or what your application should look like in a good running state is, you know, people sort of underestimate it, but it, it is incredibly important because it allows you to run the same way at two in the morning as you do at two in the afternoon as, you know, somebody being on vacation. Like it's, it's known as to what the best practices should be. And, um, and then the system is going to automatically make sure that, uh, you know, it's doing everything it can to make sure that you're getting to that state, uh, you know, as much as it possibly can. Um, listen, so I, I think we've, we've sort of gone through both networking and storage uh, pretty well. Um, you know, just again, in terms of giving people a little more depth of these areas, they're, you know, they're things that as much as we'd love to ignore storage and networking and, and just focus on applications, it always comes back to, you know, making sure that foundation's stable. Um, any last thoughts for people about, uh, you know, storage and networking, whether it's, you know, just a, a good place to learn stuff or, you know, good, good common practices to think about? I think, I mean, we've we got some stuff in the show notes and I, I think what the, the kind of core thing I, I think of here is, you know, there's a, there's a joke I saw on Twitter, which is right. Silicon Valley's reinventing the bus every six months is, is sort of like the, I feel like say the, you know, in the, in our space and in, in infra and, and stuff like this is we're relearning that storage and networking are hard like every year right. where it's like, Oh no, no, no. Like, yeah, that's, you don't need those big things that, you know, Cisco built for all those years. We had this software thing and they're like, Oh, we're running into all the problems that Cisco figured out 10 years ago. And then, you know, those people are reinventing. Then there's some new, per- so I think, I think the key things are they, they are hard. Um, but it's, it's about making just because the underlying, um, you know, say problems are, you know, potentially hard, uh, that shouldn't be hard for the user, right? So, right. you know, kind of the Apple approach of, yeah, it could be hard, but as long as it's under the covers and you don't see it, then it, then it's invisible to you. So to me, like having these type of standardized interfaces and way to document it is, um, you know, figure out the best, what makes, you know, the underlying piping that makes the best sense for your environment, but for the actual consumers, it should be, it should be pretty seamless. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good point and, and good lessons learned and, uh, you know, good, good walk away for people. It's, uh, you know, the, the skills that the people that are in your organization that have, you know, have those bumps and bruises from storage and networking are, are probably going to be somewhat useful in the container world. It's just a matter of convincing them that, uh, uh, you know, they, they need to kind of, you know, deal with this new paradigm a little bit and, and you're going to help them get there. So, well, cool, folks. I hope this was interesting. Um, you know, as always, thanks for everybody who's been listening. We've been getting some great feedback from people. Uh, we sent out some some tweets recently looking for new topics and uh, got a lot of really good feedback on that. You know, things around, um, you know, uh, data, large distributed application management, uh, machine learning, some of these big data applications. We'll definitely get those out there. We've got some feelers out to the folks from Microsoft around Windows containers. I know that's a topic you want to talk about. Uh, OCI and, and CRIO are both on your list. So lots of things that are on our uh, on our list of things to get to. Again, um, you know, as always, hit us up, emails, Twitter, uh, on the blog. However, you know, if you've got topics or feedback or anything, uh, we'd love to hear it and trying to make the show better for you. So with that, Tyler, uh, have a good weekend, folks. We will talk to you next week. Bye.